several of our speakers commented on the challenges of adjuvant systemic therapy decision-making in women with lower-risk node-negative tumors, and I asked Dr. Harold Burstein to present patients from his practice to illustrate how he approaches treatment in this situation. The first case was a 52-year-old woman who worked as a pharmaceutical representative for a non-oncologic product. The patient was diagnosed through screening mammography with a 1.3 sonometer estrogen receptor positive HER2-negative node-negative invasive tumor. She was a very sophisticated consumer of healthcare information, though she was not particularly versed in breast cancer per se. But what she appreciated, perhaps more than most, is that drugs have a lot of side effects. And even though she was in the pharma trade, she was someone who really was quite ambivalent about loading up on drugs to treat her cancer problem. So I guess the issue on the table there is she's going to get hormonal therapy. And the question is, does she get chemo on top of that? Absolutely. So, you know, in breast cancer medicine right now, we treat patients based on the biological features of their tumor. If the tumor is estrogen or progesterone receptor positive, then we get anti-estrogen therapies. If the tumor is HER2 positive, then they typically get trastuzumab or anti-HER2 therapy. And chemotherapy is a modality that sort of can be used in both ER positive and ER negative HER2 positive and HER2 negative patients, but where increasingly we are thinking that in these ER positive cases, the benefits of chemotherapy might be less than we historically have imagined. So what kind of went on in the discussions there and what did you decide to do? So my discussion with this patient was, I think, fairly typical for how I approach these early-stage breast cancers, which is to say that one has to acknowledge that there are a wealth of data and that those data suggest patients need to consider chemotherapy. So canonical trials like NSABP-B20, which was a randomized study of ER-positive node-negative breast cancer patients who were given chemotherapy and tamoxifen or tamoxifen alone, demonstrated that adding chemotherapy to tamoxifen lowered the risk of recurrence and contributed to a small survival advantage. The risk of recurrence was lowered by about 4 or 5%. And so current U.S. guidelines from the NCCN panel, which I have the privilege of sitting on, suggest consideration of chemotherapy for women whose tumors are ER positive and greater than one centimeter. And certainly we know from our patterns of care study that in general, at least before Oncotype, these patients almost always were getting chemotherapy. That's right. And we've actually tracked that in the NCCN as well, which was that up until the late 1990s, these women rarely got chemo. When the NSABP B20 data were released, there was a big jump in the incidence of chemotherapy. And this is an enormously common problem because when you do lots of screening mammography, you find a lot of one to two centimeter node negative ER positive breast cancers. Now, one of the issues here are the numbers, so to speak, which a lot of people Paul off Peter Rabin's adjuvant online website. Did you discuss specific numbers with her? I like to do that, and I like Peter's program, adjuvantonline.com, because I think it does help to give in sort of strong numerical terms a real sense of what the benefits are. Many patients imagine that if they get chemo, they're going to live forever, and if they don't get chemo, they'll die from their disease. And of course, it's not a simple relationship like that. Chemotherapy lowers the risk of recurrence by something on the order of 25 or 30 percent on average in ER-positive breast cancer. And that's a relative reduction. And that's a relative reduction. So in a woman who has a smaller tumor, the absolute gains are even smaller. And just to clarify, relative meaning what fraction of the recurrences you know, roughly are avoided So again, looking at this group of patients in total without trying to break it down in terms of oncotype or other tests, 1.3 centimeter, ER positive, node negative, what numbers overall would you provide in terms of risk of relapse without any intervention with hormonal therapy and then with hormonal therapy with chemo? 
I would guess something on the order of a 15% chance of recurrence with endocrine therapy alone that chemotherapy on average would be expected to lower that to something like 10 to 12%. And the baseline risk of recurrence without the hormone therapy? Without hormone therapy, frankly, that would be such an old experience that we don't really focus on that. I mean, I think all these women need hormone therapy. You know, Peter's model on Adjuvant Online would allow you to calculate that, and I would guess it would be something on the order of 20 to 25%. So this woman would have started out with an overall risk of recurrence without any kind of therapy of in the 20s? 20%. Endocrine therapy lowers that by 30 to 40%. So now you're talking 14 15%. Chemotherapy, on average, would push it down a little further, down to you know, 10 12%. And you know, we know that a lot of women with those those kinds of numbers would be interested in chemotherapy. Absolutely. Two, and a lot three, of oncologists four. would be willing to give it, and that would make sense. Right. So that's kind of where the archetype comes in. So that's how I frame the discussion, because I think that patients really have to understand where we historically came from and why we think about chemotherapy. So then you say, but, but there is reason to believe that, in fact, those numbers are averages which may or may not describe your case. And I think an analogy I often use is to a mutual fund, which is to say if your mutual fund gives you a 5% return, that's because some stocks went up 85% and some stocks went down 14% and some stocks were the same. And on the average, there was a 5% improvement. And increasingly with breast cancer, we realize that the benefits of chemotherapy are not absolutely average across the board but that there are some tumors that derive substantially more benefit from chemotherapy than we imagine. And by contrast, there are some tumors that simply don't need chemotherapy because they're either insensitive to chemo or because they do so well with endocrine therapy alone that the benefits of chemotherapy become vanishingly small. And this is where the oncotype has been utilized. Can you explain what that test is, how it's done, and what it means? Oncotype DX is a molecular assay that takes a chunk of tumor that's already been fixed in formalin and embedded in paraffin, the way a normal pathology specimen is processed. It takes a fragment of that tumor and analyzes the pattern of expression in 21 genes from that tumor. 16 of these genes are genes that are thought to be critical for breast cancer biology, and they include things like estrogen receptor, progesterone receptor, HER2, key 67 other markers of proliferation and invasiveness of the breast cancer. And then it also measures five so-called reference genes so that you can normalize the analysis for the total amount of DNA, for instance, present in the specimen or RNA more accurately. And what they then do is they use the levels of expression of all these different genes to calculate what's called a recurrence score. It's a number between zero and 100. And the recurrence score is then plotted on a sort of curvilinear line against the chance of recurrence at 10 years for women who have been treated with tamoxifen for ER-positive node-negative breast cancer. So, for instance, you end up with a recurrence score that might be something like 15, and I don't have the grid in front of me, but that might project to a, for instance, 10% chance of recurrence over the next decade with tamoxifen treatment. And these can be broadly clustered into low, intermediate, or high risk of recurrence. So the very first thing the oncotype does is it quite reliably provides an estimate to the patient of what her chance of distant metastatic recurrence is over 10 years based on tamoxifen treatment. Now, I think that if that alone was what it did, it would not be something that's such a valuable tool in my practice. But further work from the company that developed Oncotype in collaboration with the NSABP has suggested that that recurrence score also predicts how likely it is for the patient to benefit from chemotherapy. Patients who have low-risk scores by Oncotype have a very good prognosis overall, and chemotherapy does not substantially improve it. 
patients who have a high risk of recurrence as measured by Oncotype have a much more worse risk of recurrence than we historically have imagined. And actually, chemotherapy helps them far more than we were usually saying. And for the intermediate group of patients, the benefits of chemotherapy are harder to disprove. The result is more intermediate with tamoxifen therapy alone. And while the curves don't suggest a major benefit for chemo, it's hard to say there's no benefit for chemotherapy. So that actually is a very useful tool, I think, because the box that we've been in is that we would say to a patient, well, I think the benefits of chemotherapy in your case are actually pretty small because the tumor is ER and PR positive and HER2 negative and has a low intermediate grade, and it's a small tumor. But it's been actually hard to prove that chemotherapy wouldn't help them or that, you know, my interpretation of this pathology report or my pathologist's interpretation of the tumor under the microscope is sufficient to allow us to forego chemotherapy. There is something about the laboratory precision of the oncotype assay and the independent confirmation we have for its use in these NSABP trials that has allowed doctors and patients to more comfortably say, you know, this kind of tumor doesn't really need chemo, or by contrast, this tumor really needs chemo far more than we've imagined. And so in previous remarks, you know, I've referred to this as sort of a spine-stiffening tool. It allows people to sit up a little straighter and say with more conviction, you know, it's not just my guess or my pathologist read, not that there's anything wrong with our pathologist, but just it's not just us thinking this through. There is an objective standard that you can measure, and it suggests that there really is quite modest benefit or more benefit than we've imagined, but it can help the patient make a better decision because it can more accurately give a sense as to how much benefit there really is for adding chemotherapy. And so when you discussed the idea of doing an oncotype with this patient, did you get to a point where you felt like this was going to change what you and she decided to do one way or the other? Well, this patient, as I mentioned, was a fairly sophisticated healthcare consumer, and she wasn't eager to get chemotherapy, and she'd actually read up on Oncotype. And she came to me and was listening to me go through my usual presentation, and then when I said, but... There is this other test that can help us. She said, yes, the Oncotype test. Tell me more about that. And so, you know, that was an easy case to convince her to proceed with Oncotype DX testing, which really she convinced me because she said, I'm on the fence about chemotherapy. I would take it, of course, if it really helps me. But if it doesn't really help me, I don't want it. And so it was very useful for our discussion. And I guess just getting back to what you were mentioning before, at least the preliminary data, maybe we'll see what time, whether this holds up, was that in the high-risk patients, about three-quarters of the relapses were avoided with chemotherapy. That's right. So again, it's not that it simply identifies patients who don't need chemotherapy. It can have the opposite effect, and we'll talk about that in another case, I'm sure, of actually making people think twice about chemotherapy. And sometimes chemotherapy is more valuable than we imagine. So what happened? Well, in this case, we did have the Oncotype DX testing performed. To her good fortune, she returned with a very low Oncotype DX score on the order of seven or eight. That projected a low risk of recurrence over the next decade and minimal benefit for chemotherapy. And so we proceeded with endocrine therapy alone. What kind of endocrine therapy? Well, because she was sort of still in this perimenopausal window, I thought she should start on tamoxifen. What's your plan moving forward in terms of that? You know, assuming she doesn't, you know, have ongoing menstrual function, in a couple of years, I would certainly feel that it might be reasonable to switch her to an aromatase inhibitor, though we've all been burned by women who had either treatment-induced amenorrhea or who were perimenopausal, who went on to an AI and who then redeveloped ovarian function. And because we've all been burned by those experiences, and we've written up some cases, and Ian Smith in London has written up some cases of these experiences, I think that if there's any ambiguity about the menopausal status, tamoxifen's the drug of choice. Now, 
I asked you if you could also pull a case of a patient where you ended up giving chemo because of the oncotype. Can you present that? Yeah. So this was a 42-year-old woman, and she was an employee with the Postal Service and had to work every day and had gone for her first mammogram, actually, and had had a small tumor detected at that time. It was eight or nine millimeters in size. It, too, was of intermediate grade. It was estrogen receptor positive and progesterone receptor negative and HER2 negative. And this tumor had some somewhat unusual features under the microscope. It was one of those cases where the pathologist had sent us this thing saying, you know, this looks mostly like invasive ductal cancer, but there just were some funny sort of elements to the pathology. Maybe it had some medullary features or things. They just, it wasn't pure ductal carcinoma. So in this instance, the patient came in and she had done some reading and was very excited that her tumor was less than one centimeter because that usually has a very good prognosis. And she was really not looking to get chemotherapy. What was her life situation? Did she have children and a spouse? She had a teenage child. She had a spouse. They were estranged. And she had to work, you know, every day to provide for her family. So she was not looking for things that would interfere with her lifestyle. You know, she had to survive financially. And so we reviewed the same kind of discussion as we had. But in this case, I was a little more concerned that she might need chemotherapy because of these funny pathological features, the fact that the estrogen receptor was positive but progesterone receptor was negative. And so I thought that Oncotype, again, might help us make a better decision. And this was something where I had to introduce the rationale for the test to the patient. And we agreed to proceed in that direction. And she ended up coming back with a very high recurrence score over 40, which is actually one of the highest I've seen. So there was something a little unusual about this case. The pathology was funny, a very high recurrence score, and usually high recurrence score. The tumor is still small, and for that reason, her prognosis, I think, is still overall quite good. But it made me think that this is a situation where the benefits of chemotherapy might actually be more than we historically have given it credit to. Other guidelines take this into account. The NCCN guidelines suggest that for tumors that are between 6 and 10 millimeters that are ER positive, that you consider chemotherapy if the tumor is poorly differentiated or has lymphovascular invasion or has HER2 overexpression. And I personally think that a case like this is another one where I think there may be more of a role for chemotherapy because her risk of recurrence may be much greater without chemo than we've historically imagined. Although it is kind of tough to tell somebody who has an 8 or 9 millimeter tumor that they need chemo. Do you think that a couple years ago before the oncotype came out, you would have given her chemo or not? I think it would have been a less satisfying discussion, and that's one of the virtues of the oncotype DX. I think that, again, the better information allows for better clinical decision. I take the point that we still don't know exactly how much benefit she's going to get from chemo because small tumors still do pretty well on average. But I encouraged her to think about chemotherapy, and she ultimately underwent four cycles of chemotherapy and has now returned to work. She got AC? She did get AC on a dose-dense schedule. So she got done with it quicker. She did, and there's not a lot of data, as you know, for dose-dense AC as opposed to AC followed by paclitaxel, but the idea of finishing in eight weeks as opposed to 12 weeks was of critical importance to this woman. And, you know, she had side effects of chemotherapy. It made her tired, but she was able to work most of the time through her chemotherapy treatment and is now back at work. And, you know, I'm kind of curious, what's your take on the metagenicity of AC. People kind of sort of brush off AC because we use it so much. What do you see in terms of that? 
For most people, the current generation of antiemetics are very effective. It's clearly different than it was 15 years ago before we had the newer agents. And then there's a small fraction of patients who are really miserable. And it's hard to predict who those are going to be. But I would guess, you know, one person in 20 really just has a rotten time from a GI point of view. A lot of people get queasiness and throw up still, despite some of the newer anti-nausea medicines. But that's actually a surprisingly manageable side effect these days, except for a small fraction of patients who really suffer. How did she do in terms of GI toxicity? She had, you know, what I would describe as a fairly typical experience, which is she had some queasiness. She got constipation from the 5-HT3 antagonist therapy she was getting. So her gut was kind of a mess for, you know, the duration of the chemotherapy time. But she didn't get dehydrated. She didn't have terrible mouth sores. She was able to maintain her nourishment and all those sorts of things. How did she deal with the hair loss? Well, she didn't love it, but, you know, she put on her cap and went to work. So yeah. she worked well during chemotherapy? She worked during, well, she didn't work full-time. She'd abbreviated her hours and would take off a day or two around her chemotherapy treatments and had a wig for you know, social functions and other times, and then she would wear a cap. What do you see as the advantage of using dose-dense AC as opposed to non-dose-dense AC? Well, you know, it is interesting that in 9741, accelerating the course of the chemotherapy made for better results. And so it may be that it's a better way to give chemo. We don't really know for AC in isolation if that's true, though based on the 9741 data from the CALGB, that's now part of, for instance, the low-risk NCI trial, which is AC for four or six cycles, or taxol, paclitaxel for four or six cycles, all given in a dose-dense fashion. The advantages are that when you give it, it's shorter, and since it is obligatory to give growth factor support, there's a very, very low risk of febrile neutropenia or other neutropenic complications when you give it that way. I guess we should point out that, as in both of these women, the archetype right now is only utilizing ER-positive, node-negative tumors, which That's both correct. of these women had. What kind of hormonal therapy are you using with this woman? Well, this woman was 42 and premenopausal, again, at the time of her diagnosis. She has had many months of chemotherapy-induced amenorrhea, but for the moment, she's still on tamoxifen because of concern that she might recover ovarian function. That's interesting. So she stopped having her periods during the chemo? Yep. And has not returned? Well, she's only about eight months out, but that's right. Does she have menopausal symptoms, hot flashes? Oh, yeah, hot flashes and night sweats. What do we know statistically about the likelihood that she's going to remain amenorrheic? The statistical odds for AC are that she has a strong possibility of recovering ovarian function. So women in their 40s, probably two-thirds would go into menopause with AC chemotherapy. But in many of those women, that will prove short-lived and such that within a total of 6 or 12 months or even longer, they will recover ovarian function. Now, one of the challenging issues about these kinds of cases in premenopausal women is what to do with the hormonal therapy over time. And if she turns out to be one of these women who doesn't recover her function, she persistently stays amenorrheic, you test her chemically and find that she's postmenopausal. At some point, two, three years from now, would you consider starting an aromatase inhibitor? I think you have to be very leery of doing that. So in this case series, again, that Ian Smith and colleagues published in the JCO and that we published in clinical breast cancer, this woman was exactly in that pattern of experience, which was in her early 40s with chemotherapy-induced amenorrhea and who eventually, in the case series, many of these women were started on aromatase inhibitors. And anywhere between 6 and 59 months after their chemotherapy, they subsequently recovered over function. And that means that for a substantial part of their treatment history, they might have been not getting effective endocrine treatment. So again, I think the overwhelming benefit of the doubt has to be on the possibility that they have residual ovarian function and should be on tamoxifen. And what happens when she gets to the five-year point? Well, 
You've got time to figure that out. At five years in a premenopausal woman, we don't have any data that ongoing tamoxifen therapy is valuable. So if she's finishing five years of tamoxifen and she's still amenorrheic, I think there's a little downside to thinking about an AI if you want to offer extended adjuvant treatment in such a fashion. I guess that also ties into the question of in postmenopausal women who are started on an aromatase inhibitor up front, how long do you continue the aromatase inhibitor? Well, that's a very important question for which we don't have any data. All the clinical trials that have reported so far have focused on up to five years of AI therapy. Some even gave less. So the crossover studies like the intergroup exomestane study completed a total of five years of endocrine therapy, of which two to three years was tamoxifen. ATAC and BIG-198 used five years of the AI. The MA-17 study planned to use five years of the AI, but because of the early release of the data, the average duration of treatment was actually only two and a half years. So there are surprisingly few data on treating women with aromatase inhibitor therapy beyond five years. So there are going to be studies that address that question. The NSABP has embarked on a study for women who are finishing five years of combined therapy with either an AI alone or tamoxifen and then an AI, and will continue either a placebo or an AI in these women. The MA17 investigators are doing a study for women who are finishing 10 years of therapy. That's five years of tamoxifen and then five years of letrozole to again re-randomize them to letrozole or a placebo. And so in the years ahead, we will have more data. So what I tell patients when they're starting treatment right now is, you know, let's get to the five-year mark and then hopefully we'll have some more news and we can update them at that point. But I think our whole perception of breast cancer has changed a lot in the last few years in terms of the long-term history, particularly in these women who have ER-positive tumors like these two patients, in terms of the risk of relapse beyond five years. Can you talk about that? Well, it's been known for a long time that breast cancer particularly estrogen receptor positive breast cancer has a long natural history and there are late recurrences all the time. And in fact, the majority of the recurrences or at least half the recurrences are going to be after year five as opposed to before year five. And it's not that people weren't aware of that. It's that we didn't have data that treatment beyond five years was valuable. So we had randomized trials of tamoxifen duration that suggested five years was the optimal point and that more therapy wasn't helpful. And it was only when we had data that extended the use of adjuvant endocrine therapy, such as an MA17 or the NSABP B33 data, where women who finished five years of tamoxifen were then randomly assigned to a placebo or an AI, that we now can show that there is ongoing benefit from anti-estrogen therapy. The other thing that happens, of course, is that as time goes by, the percentage of recurrences that are distant metastatic recurrences declines. And the percentage of breast cancer events that are new second primary tumors in the same or the opposite breast increases. So as you get beyond years seven, eight, nine, actually a lot of the benefit of these anti-estrogen strategies is really in secondary prevention of another breast cancer. That's not a trivial concern, and most breast cancer patients would happily prevent those second breast cancers. But in fact, those are the events that tend to increase in frequency as time goes by. Can you talk about what your approach is in general to management of adjuvant therapy with HER2-positive disease in terms of when you treat and what you treat with? Well, the data are quite compelling that adding trastuzumab to chemotherapy lowers the risk of recurrence. It cuts the risk of recurrence in about half. HER2-positive breast cancer is a virulent form of breast cancer, and in the adjuvant trials, 
about one-third of the women who got chemotherapy still recurred, which is very high risk in the very short follow-up that's been reported. And trastuzumab cut that risk in half, down to about one in six. And I guess we should point out, too, that's cutting in a half on top of the benefits they might receive from chemotherapy and hormonal therapy if the tumor is ER positive. Well, the women, you know, for instance, in the North American Intergroup and NSABP studies, the women who got AC followed by paclitaxel, essentially one in three of them had recurred by four years of follow-up, despite our A-game chemotherapy and appropriate anti-estrogen treatment. And trastuzumab cut that in half. So you can't rely on our traditional therapies to help these women do better. You need trastuzumab. So the debate these days is not whether trastuzumab helps. We know it helps. The only debate is on secondary issues like how big does a tumor have to be before it warrants consideration of trastuzumab? What's the best chemotherapy program to link to trastuzumab? What is the best way to follow for cardiac toxicity, which is a unique side effect of trastuzumab? And what should be the right duration of a trastuzumab treatment? So those are the things that we agonize over in clinic and are still being investigated. What's your usual approach in terms of what kind of chemotherapy do you usually utilize? So the vast majority of the women in the trastuzumab adjuvant trials received an anthracycline-based chemotherapy program, typically anthracyclines like AC followed by paclitaxel or docetaxel, with the trastuzumab being started at the time of the taxane. So that's how the North American trials were for the most part done and where we clearly have compelling survival advantage for use of trastuzumab. There is a risk of cardiac toxicity with that treatment strategy. Roughly 3% of patients who get ACTH will experience symptomatic heart failure. And it's been hard to figure out exactly who these women are. They tend to be older, to have pre-existing hypertension. They tend to have borderline ejection fraction numbers at baseline, but it's still very hard to pick out who is really at jeopardy. So for the past year, that's what my treatment program has been for the most part, because since this is an aggressive breast cancer, that real but low risk of cardiac toxicity was something that clearly wouldn't keep you from giving trastuzumab to most breast cancer patients. We've heard updates of one of the adjuvant trastuzumab trials, the so-called BCIRG006 trial. And that trial had a third arm, which was a non-anthracycline chemotherapy arm, the so-called TCH, trastuzumab, docetaxel, carboplatin regimen. And with more mature data, it looks like TCH performs as well as ACTH in the BCIRG006 trial and may have safety advantages in that there was a slightly lower risk of congestive heart failure and a fewer percentage of patients had asymptomatic changes in LVEF. So I think increasingly people are going to look at this TCH regimen as another acceptable substitute for ACTH in women, which might have a slightly lower risk of cardiac complications. For those unusual patients who do develop clinical heart failure, what happens? What's the natural course? So in the short term, most patients get better. So with aggressive management of blood pressure and afterload reduction and beta blockade and other appropriate cardiac interventions, the majority of patients recover their LVEF and do well within a few months. There undoubtedly are going to still be a fraction, a small fraction of patients who have lingering symptoms of heart failure. And we don't know what the long-term side effects are going to be for these women, you know, 10 years out. We only have two to three years of follow-up for all these patients at this time. What about the use of trastuzumab without chemotherapy in the adjuvant setting? So the interesting thing about the adjuvant trials was that all of the women were given chemotherapy and trastuzumab. So we don't really know whether trastuzumab by itself would be effective. On the one hand, it's very tempting to think it would be. Single-agent trastuzumab has activity. It's targeting the growth factor on the tumor cell. There's probably reason to think it's as effective as chemotherapy when given by itself, but we just don't really know that. The other thing that interests me is there are some 
some indirect data that giving chemotherapy and trastuzumab together looks better than, for instance, a sequential program where you give the chemotherapy first and then give the trastuzumab afterwards. That's in metastatic disease. That's in metastatic disease, and it's also in one of the adjuvant trials. The North American Intergroup Study had a three-arm structure. It was AC followed by paclitaxel. AC followed by paclitaxel, followed by trastuzumab, or AC followed by paclitaxel with concurrent trastuzumab. And the arm that did best was the group of women who got the concurrent chemotherapy and trastuzumab. So I do believe that there's some synergy between those treatments. And so whenever possible, I like to give some chemotherapy concurrently with the trastuzumab. The final thing I want to ask you about is a number of times you've referred to the use of taxanes in the adjuvant setting. Can you talk about what's involved in selecting what type of taxane you're going to use and what your thoughts are on the newest addition to the taxane armamentarian nab paclitaxel? Well, taxanes have proven to be very useful drugs in preventing recurrence of breast cancer. A variety of studies have shown that adding taxanes to anthracycline-based chemotherapy can lower the risk of recurrence. And so we have three commercially available taxanes in the United States, paclitaxel, docetaxel, and NAB paclitaxel, as you said. I think most oncologists, including myself, are kind of creatures of habit, and we tend to use regimens that we are familiar with and feel comfortable with based on their support in the literature. So, you know, my most typical taxane-based chemotherapy program has been AC followed by paclitaxel. If the tumor is HER2 positive, as we just were discussing, I typically give AC followed by weekly paclitaxel with concurrent trastuzumab. If the tumor is not HER2 positive, I tend to give the dose-dense AC followed by paclitaxel every two-week schedule that the CALGB 9741 study has so well described. There are other individuals who give docetaxel, and there are other docetaxel-based regimens, the TAC regimen, for instance, and that's been shown to be superior to a non-taxane regimen called FAC, so that's an option. Both dose-dense AC, paclitaxel, and TAC essentially require extensive growth factor support, so there's not huge advantages one way or the other there. There was a forearm study reported a year ago that compared AC followed by one of four different ways of giving taxanes, weekly paclitaxel or every three-week paclitaxel versus weekly docetaxel versus every three-week docetaxel. It just shows you how fast the field moves because when that study was drafted in 1999, it seemed like a cutting-edge question. When the results were reported in 2005, it was greeted with an enormous yawn. People didn't really think it was relevant to our practice anymore. What it showed overall was really no major difference between the taxanes as given in that study. So I think either of these is quite reasonable. For the moment, there really are very limited data for the NAB paclitaxel in the adjuvant setting. We've just completed a feasibility pilot looking at NAB paclitaxel, and we'll hopefully be reporting that in 2007. I think that... How um, is it used in the study you did? We used it as a substitute for dose-dense sort of underived paclitaxel, pure paclitaxel. It's not FDA-approved for use in the adjuvant setting. And, you know, because we have such a wealth of experience with the other taxanes, I think uh, pride of place goes to them. How do you compare the safety and tolerability profiles of the three taxanes? Well, you know, we use them frequently in different ways. So paclitaxel, I typically give on a once-a-week schedule because randomized studies have shown that weekly paclitaxel is superior to every three-week paclitaxel. In the adjuvant setting, we also give it on that dose-dense every two-week schedule, and we have a lot of safety data for that. For docetaxel, I typically give it every three weeks. That's the FDA-approved schedule, and that's where most of the impressive data with docetaxel have been derived. 
every two-week paclitaxel and every three-week docetaxel more or less require GCSF support in routine practice. They have slightly different side effect profiles. They both require corticosteroid co-administration. Most of them are reasonably well tolerated. Increasingly, though, as we incorporate biologicals into our therapy, I'm sort of building around the biologic regimen. So, for instance, in the metastatic setting, I frequently give paclitaxel with bevacizumab. That was a regimen that used weekly paclitaxel. As you've already heard, I give every two-week paclitaxel in the adjuvant chemo setting. If it's HER2 positive, I give weekly. So I tend to, in my practice, you know, give the drug on the schedule the way it was best studied. What's your experience been with NAB, and what's your perception in terms of potential advantages well, the NAB paclitaxel does not require cremaphore to become soluble in water, and therefore it does not require the corticosteroid premedication. It was compared in a head-to-head study against pure paclitaxel. Unfortunately, that study used different doses of the two drugs, 175 of paclitaxel versus 260 of NAB paclitaxel. They looked equivalent in that trial. There's a study reported at the San Antonio Breast Cancer Symposium comparing weekly NAB paclitaxel versus every three-week docetaxel, suggesting rough comparability in the metastatic setting. So what's interesting to me is that taxanes continue to be very plastic drugs, by which I mean you can use them in different schedules and different settings. They are drugs that, when you give them in different ways, have different side effects. So for instance, when you give weekly paclitaxel, you almost never see hypersensitivity reactions. And you do not need the more extensive 20 milligram of decadron pre-medication the night before and morning of. You can get away with a single administration of decadron on the day of treatment in clinic and still very rarely see hypersensitivity. So I think that, you know, in routine practice, there are a lot of easy ways to give taxanes and they'll continue to be standard parts of our care for a long time. Another potential advantage of NAB has been the shorter infusion time. Can you talk about that? It is true that the drug is given over, I think, 15 to 30 minutes compared to one hour for weekly paclitaxel, and that is a potential advantage. Getting back to this issue of AIs and premenopausal patients, I guess one thing from a nursing point of view is if a nurse ever hears a patient talk about having a menstrual period who's on an aromatase inhibitor, maybe that needs to draw some attention. Yeah, absolutely. Because women who are on aromatase inhibitors ought to be postmenopausal, and because the medicine has a pure antiestrogen effect, it works by estrogen deprivation, there really should be no uterine bleeding while on an aromatase inhibitor. Now, the medicines can contribute to terrible vaginitis such that women can get you know, ulceration of the vaginal tissues or genital urinary bleeding, so you need to explore where the bleeding's coming from, but they shouldn't get a period. And if they're getting a period, something's amiss in the situation. What's your observation been in terms of the arthralgias that occur when the aromatase inhibitors... Arthralgias are a real problem for patients who are taking aromatase inhibitors. The typical symptoms consist of achiness in the joints, the hands, the elbows, the shoulders, the knees. Patients feel stiff and achy when they get up in the morning. It tends to go away, usually with morning activities. There were a couple of interesting presentations that bear on that. The first was that the prevalence of this is actually quite high. In the phase three trials that looked at the aromatase inhibitors versus tamoxifen, they didn't capture a lot of data on arthralgia syndromes. So the incidence was considerably lower than what we've been seeing in clinic. There was a report at San Antonio on a patient-focused survey that asked the patients how many of them have symptoms. 45 to 50 percent are having these arthralgia symptoms. Of course, we don't know what that would be in a control population. We don't. But, it, you know, from talking to patients, this is a common complaint. The second interesting thing is that there was a small report on the rheumatologic workup. And for the most part, the rheumatologic workup, getting things to rule out rheumatoid arthritis and lupus and Sogren syndrome and things like that, is pretty unrevealing in these patients. 
So it's a common complaint. It's clearly related to AI therapy. We jokingly call the symptoms, where the patients come in and they often give what we jokingly call the Clickstein sign. Lloyd Clickstein was one of the rheumatologists. We were sending these patients to be seen for an evaluation when we first started seeing this in the clinic. And if the Levine sign in medicine was when the patient makes a fist and clutches their chest, the Clickstein sign was when they sort of squeeze their hands and rub their joints and they kind of say, you know, I feel like I've aged overnight or I feel like I'm an old lady now. And that was such a uniform description of the symptoms that we coined the symptom after him. So, you know, fortunately for most women, this is not a deal breaker in the sense that, you know, they try Tylenol or other anti-inflammatory products to see if it'll help. Anecdotally, it doesn't seem to help that much. And we all are hoping that there will be something that comes along that alleviates this because a few percentage of patients are really quite debilitated by it. And I've had more than a handful of patients who have switched back to tamoxifen because they didn't like the musculoskeletal symptoms of the aromatase inhibitors. Any benefit to switching to another AI? My own personal impression is that it's only by a sheer luck if that works, that anecdotally some patients tolerate one more than the other. It clearly is a class effect, and I don't know of any literature to suggest that one AI has less or more of this problem than the other.